This webinar was previously recorded and converted to a listening format. Now, please enjoy this timely and valuable market information from expert commercial real estate investor James Kandasamy and special guests. Welcome to Achieve Wealth through Value Add Real Estate Investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hi, audience who have come to today's webinar. This is an educational webinar that we do as a, a chief investment group. My name is James Kandasamy. Today, uh, I'm having uh, Josh Belk, uh, who's going to be doing a tax-focused uh, webinar, which is basically getting ready for end of the year and other wealth killers, which is you know caused by not knowing how to do your taxes properly. Um, just to introduce ourselves, uh, my name is James Kandasamy. Uh, we're a deal sponsor focusing in Austin and San Antonio. Uh, we have like almost 0 0.5 billion in assets under management, uh, 4,000 units. Uh, we used to manage 4,000 units. So we sold half of it last year. Uh, 19 apartments is also what we have managed. Uh, right now we have like seven apartments uh, and we have like almost a $80 million raise uh, around 1,000 units and class A under development. Uh, I think 300 units under construction right now. We also vertically integrated uh, as asset construction and property management. I'm also author of the two best-selling book, Passive Investing in Commercial Real Estate and Smarter Doctors. You work hard, make your money work harder. On the left is my wife, Shanti. She runs the uh, property and construction management. And uh, also, if you want to join us uh, to see more, follow me on Instagram uh, using James Kandasamy. And uh, we have also have a large uh, multifamily investors group in Facebook, almost 20,000 people there. But you should be able to get hold of me through uh, through social media. Just look for my name and I should be in LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, so without due, I'm going to be, without due delay, I'm just going to give it to uh, Josh Belk. Uh, Josh, why not you introduce yourself? I, mean, I don't want to do injustice, not introducing all the your credentials, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Then I'm going to promote you as a host. Then we can uh, start presenting. Wonderful. Yeah, Josh Belk. I own uh, Lodestar uh, Tax and Consulting. Uh, we're a, um, an accounting firm, uh, primarily lead with tax. About eight to nine hundred uh, corporate clients throughout the uh, throughout the country, um, and uh, real estate is kind of our our niche in regards to uh, where where our clients sit. Either they have a they're full blown real estate investors, or they have uh, real estate uh, heavily within their within their portfolios, uh, whether um, active or passive inside and outside of their retirement accounts. So, um, so that, that's kind of who I am, uh, nothing all that spectacular, but we, uh, um, fortunately, uh, get to spend a lot of our time in this space trying to help, uh, um, help clients that are, uh, especially those that are looking to, are either are looking to get into real estate. Yeah. So Josh and, uh, uh, Josh is, uh, my CPA in the current real estate. So, uh, brings a lot of uh, credibility to the space. So, you know, reach out to his firm and, uh, you know, I'm sure he's going to put some of his contact information later on. So, Josh, I'm going to make you the host right now. Okay. So at least you can start presenting. And uh, please use the Q&A chat box, Q&A box to ask any questions and we'll try to get as much questions answered as possible. This is a webinar, but we'll also do it as a web, uh, as a podcast series where I will be asking questions to Josh as we go along. And um, so that we can publish it as a podcast as well. So, Josh, go ahead. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, what I'm going to do here is uh, just going to kind of make a, just a few introductory comments, and I'm going to hop in a little bit to talk about some of the tax law changes that we saw uh, go into place into 2023. 
uh, two pieces of legislation that went through uh, that uh, that will impact uh, probably most of you, if not all of you. Uh, and then uh, I'll make a um, just really kind of make some just kind of run through a list of some areas maybe you just need to consider, be aware of, and uh, and then just kind of back accordingly. Especially we're kind of up to the end of the year, so. Uh, you're kind of right at the last minute of trying to make changes, uh, any sort of tax reduction strategies you want to implement. Uh, you're going to kind of really need to get on those pretty quick. So we'll talk about some of those, and then uh, then we'll we'll kind of wrap things up and try to address any sort of questions that you may have. So uh, I have a podcast, Belk on Business. As far as my contact information and whatnot, um, uh, you can obviously just find me online. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, easiest place to find me. I'm not on other social media platforms. I'm uh, not really my thing. So uh, but I am on LinkedIn, and uh, the firm information is there, as well as my podcast information. Okay, wealth killer. So originally, uh, I saw the, the promo on this, uh, just kind of thinking about uh, what are things that kill our wealth. And I just kind of made, made a list here. Uh, it's kind of the top things that uh, that you kind of generally will see uh, with people as it relates to, and this is kind of both, it's going to be both on the kind of consumer and also on the business end. So lack of savings. Of course, a lot of talk about uh, savings on the personal end. Uh, but this also could happen on the business end as well. Uh, if we don't plan accordingly, a lot of times we focus more on the investment side or a lot on kind of growing our business, kind of pushing that forward, but not really focusing or uh, looking into making sure that we have adequate savings both on the on the personal and on the business end. We have had clients, and I've seen this many times, that they get themselves in trouble. They didn't adequately plan, didn't adequately budget. They end up picking a lot on a lot of kind of uh, uh, predatory type debt or consumer type debt that uh, that really can drain uh, their their businesses and and sometimes can't put them out of business. Lack of in investment discipline. Uh, this is where someone like uh, James really can kind of kind of help you come alongside you and help you with this. Uh, and that is uh, kind of having that that discipline there. Uh, and so you're not going after the the newest and the hottest, the greatest idea. Uh, you know, I was around as probably many of you were uh, in 2000 when tech stocks were the big thing, and we saw a lot of people lose their shirt. Uh, and then with crypto, we've had clients lose millions of dollars in crypto. Uh, just to, just kind of chasing the newest thing kind of can get you in trouble. Uh, really kind of aligning what, what is your purpose when it comes to investing? Be consistent with it. And then uh, don't focus quite as much on trying to time the market or to try to time necessarily your investments. Uh, not adequately, uh, not being adequately insured. I think that's fairly straightforward. Uh, poor lifestyle choices. Uh, So lack of knowledge or counsel uh, as it relates to uh, to our finances, both business and uh, as well as personal. Uh, underperforming assets. So in this environment where we have inflation that's gone up quite a bit over the last couple of years. Uh, and then so if we end up with a uh, if we do with, end up with an asset, uh, if we're lending or whatever the case may be, and it's only getting us four or five percent inflation, eight percent, obviously that's going to eat away at our wealth. And I think the two biggest ones that we're going to talk about a little bit today, and that's going to be uh, the last two taxes, and then just simply a failure, failure to plan. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through this. So uh, when I speak, I, when I speak on stage, I almost always put up this slide or mention this in some form or fashion. And that this really is to kind of set the paradigm as it relates to uh, as, as far as our, our tax system. So the, the the of course, a lot of people have opinions on on taxes. Uh, you know, some people feel that, you know, it should be there as far as a redistribution piece. Other people feel that it's kind of to punish people for earning, making money, whatever the case may be. Um, that's a lot of kind of emotional. Ultimately, uh, the tax system is built out in a way to get taxpayers to act in a certain way. So when they begin to implement things, uh, when, what you know, whether it's Congress, et cetera, that, that passes these laws, essentially it is to get us to do certain things or to act in a certain way. Uh, and uh, and I'll give examples, practical examples of this as we uh, as we um, as we kind of go through this. So they do uh, they do uh, essentially award or punish taxpayers uh, depending on how they go about deploying their capital. So if there's a you know a, a, a savings credit, for example, that's put out there is to get you know encourage people to invest in their retirement accounts. We see this with the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed, uh, deploying money into into energy, for example. Uh, simply to get us as as consumers, as taxpayers, as businesses to act in a certain way. So let's kind of talk a little bit about the tax changes uh, that uh, that went into place uh, this last year. So the um, the 2023 changes. So uh, first is going to be the is going to be a drop in accelerator bonus depreciation. So as uh, over since uh, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was passed passed in 2007 to the end of, in October of 2017. 
it began a process of allowing for certain asset classes to qualify for bonus depreciation or full accelerated 100% depreciation in year one. So a lot of our clients that are in real estate, uh, real estate professionals would uh, would implement, uh, would utilize a cost segregation report, have a cost segregation study done on a property. And what it does is it takes that property, which normally if it's a, if it's a residential property would be depreciated in its entirety, uh, the non-land portion anyway, over 27 and a half years, commercial over 39 years, and what, uh, what a cost segregation study does is it breaks that property down into its smaller components. So anything that had a 15-year life or under, so any sort of land or leasehold improvements, um, uh, any sort of uh, um, property inside of the uh, inside, so basically any property uh, or any part of the asset from the walls in. Uh, so we think of you know furnitures, fixtures, et cetera. Uh, those uh, get depreciated either over five or seven years. All of those uh, asset uh, classes uh, can be fully, would, was able to be 100% fully depreciated uh, from 2018 through 2022. In 2023, that bonus depreciation drops to 80%, in 24 down to 60%, and then in uh, 25, uh, it, uh, the the uh, rules uh, will, re I'm sorry, we go to, to four, um, uh, we go to 40% and then in 26, it goes back to the, um, uh, to the, uh, not having these bonus, uh, the bonus depreciation. That's assuming that uh, that nothing changes between now and two years from now. So, so I think, meals, I, think, I have Josh, dropped uh, down to fifty percent. So let me kind of make. I'm sorry, James, you were going to say something. Yeah, I have a question so on the bonus depreciation because a lot of people were came. I mean, who came into the real estate market when it's hundred percent bonus depreciation, depreciation, right? So what happened when this went? So when there was no bonus depreciation, so is that the Twenty-seven point five straight line uh, depreciation. Correct. What it was. So on, yeah. So residential and uh, and I'm going to say commercial that is not a hotel, um, something to that effect. So if you have a a um, uh, so but I'll stick to residential here. So correct. If you have residential, multifamily, etc., those are, are over twenty-seven and a half years. And so uh, without this bonus depreciation, the non-land would be fully. Uh, um, depreciated over 27 and a half years. Got it. Got it. So, okay. Unless something changed in the election and that might right. change as so, well, right? So it's not going to completely eliminate the, uh, the usefulness of a, uh, of a cost segregation report. Um, so even if it goes back, you can still have a cost segregation report done. Now you have to kind of weigh the, the benefits of spending the money on it. But what will happen is that even if the you can still break it down into a smaller components, but those smaller components will be depreciated over five years, seven years and 15 years instead of the 27 and a half years. So it would still allow for some additional depreciation uh, on in year one, just not as much. Got it. Got it. OK. Go ahead. OK. Um, so the the meals uh, goes back to 50 percent uh, over the last uh, few years. It was 100 uh, percent um, deductible. Uh, form 8300 is a form that uh, that needs to be prepared and get sent in if they're um, if you uh, if you collected ten thousand dollars in cash uh, if, during the um, uh, during the course of the year from any uh, from any uh, taxpayer, this form needs to go out. That's a compliance piece. And then as we look forward to 2024, uh, we have this BOI reporting, yeah. which if you're an owner of um, uh, so it's a beneficial owner uh, report that needs to uh, needs to go in. Uh, it's a FinCEN report. Uh, so if you have, if you own a business and you're over a 20% owner of that business, this report does need to be filed. So uh, you'll want to make sure that you connect with your accountant uh, to make sure that this report gets filed. And uh, it is something that I'm not quite sure if a lot of people are aware of at this point. But if you're if you're listening to this, if you if you do own a business that you own over 20% in, uh, then this report does need to get sent in. Please make sure you you connect with your accountant. Uh, you have the entire year to do it if the business is existing. So you can file it at any point in 2024. If it's a new business um, that you start in 2024, you need to have the report filed within 90 days of setting up that entity. So questions okay. uh, so, on, yeah. the, on the meal. So was that used to be 100%? Is that business meal and now it's only 50%? That is correct. So um, so for the, and it, this was a pandemic change uh, that, that was uh, put into place during, uh, uh, you know, that kind of helped during, I think it was part of the CARES Act. And so uh, that um, that increased meals to 100 percent 
and then uh, now it's back down to 50% uh, starting uh, starting in uh, for January 1st of 23. Okay, I didn't know that. So all the business meals is now only 50% uh, That is correct. That is correct. And, and this Form 8300, is this something new, completely new in 2023? It is. So historically, um, if you've ever, uh, and for some of us who are old enough when we used to work in the world of cash, um, we would, uh, you know, where you, you know, if you had some sort of a retail um, uh, location or whatever the case may be, uh, if you had, uh, if you received over $10,000 in cash, and it could have been just in general, and go into the bank and do the deposit, they run this report. That still happens uh, when you go in, if you take in over 10000 in cash at any given point. So this has changed uh, now to where they're putting the owner, the onus on um, us as business owners. So if we, if you go through and you collect during the course of the year, so James, you're a client. So say during the course of the year, you decide to pay, you know, some of uh, pay over $10,000 in your invoices in cash. Uh, then uh, that, at that point, I would need to file the, uh, that form 8300 uh, disclosing uh, our information, your information, and uh, that over 10000 in cash what, uh, did exchange hands. So is that the same as, you know, there's a lot of restaurants where they asked us to pay in cash and they gave us like 5% discount? I think I, I was always thinking that they're always trying to avoid no, <laughs> paying I, taxes. But is that Yeah, my, uh, my editorial this? comment on that is, is probably because I mean that they, they could avoid putting it in their POS system and they don't have to pay taxes on it. Correct. But would this uh, cost them to report that? or No, because it's not, it's not a single, it's not a single, uh, it's not, in, unless you go in during the course of the year and spend over 10000 in the in the restaurant, uh, the restaurant's not going to need to report it on you. Um, so this is this is uh, basically you're looking at one taxpayer to another. Oh, got it, got it, got it. And can you explain a bit more on the BOI reporting because there's something new? Okay. I'm sorry, James. What was that? Uh, can you explain a bit more on the BOI reporting? Correct. Yeah. So uh, all that is is going to be is going uh, will be, um, and, and I'm not. We aren't sure fully what all is going to be on there. Um, but it, it, for the most part, from what we understand, it's going to be at least a disclosure of the owners and uh, their personal information. It's probably driver's license, passport information, that type of thing. Would that be equivalent for even like passive investor? Let's say passive. I think if a pass is it also for passive investors who owns more than twenty percent? I know it's a bit rare to find uh, you know a syndication world who owns more than twenty percent. Right, uh, that, that would be correct. Yes. Okay. So if you're so, in equity position. If you're an equity position, you're passive, you own more than 20%, then you still have to do this BOI reporting separately from the K-1 that you get from your... That is correct. That's separate okay. from the K-1. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, if anybody in the audience uh, have questions, use the Q&A box to uh, type your questions and we can go through it while we present or at the end. Okay, the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the, um, this is it directly related to the IRS? And that's what these three bullet points are here. Uh, it had three components to it as far as the, um, uh, um, so there was kind of three basic prongs, uh, three areas they're wanting to look into as it relates to the IRS. And that was the enforcement. So that was the whole, you know, 80,000 IRS agents getting hired, coming after you type thing that you, you heard. Um, the technology piece, so some of the money was supposed to go in to, uh, to help with technology. And then also with communication, communication technology kind of goes hand in hand a little bit. So we've seen some of this start to take place. Uh, the enforcement, of course, they were saying that, you know, they're going to go only go after you know, larger, you know, higher income taxpayers making over $400,000. You know, somehow if you make $399,000, you're okay. If you make $400,000, you're evil. But um, so uh, those making over $400,000 that apparently were bad people for making money, the IRS was going to spend more time going after them. What we've seen in practicality over 2023 is that's not what they're doing. Uh, and here's the problem that uh, that we're having, or that they're having, not our problem, but they're, that they're having is they there's no way in the world they can they hire these people, they can train these people uh, to be able to audit uh, some of these uh, these more complex type businesses or these higher income taxpayers. So what we're really starting to see are smaller Schedule C type businesses getting audited. And uh, and every audit that's come into our office uh, this last year has been exactly that. It's been your small, you know, low six-figure businesses, you know, you know, making maybe hundred thousand gross and you know thirty thousand net. Th those those types of businesses are the ones right now that are audit. I think they're trying to just uh, uh, just kind of get these people to cut their teeth on uh, on some of these these other types of audits. 
um, what we what we expect if indeed that they uh, they do decide to move forward um, that uh, it, for those of us on the call that are higher income and taxpayers that we may end up seeing more audits. And then the technology and communication, if you've ever had to try to deal with the IRS, get through to them, deal with them online, whatever the case may be, it's about, it's about impossible. Um, so there are, they are making some uh, work to improve it. And we have seen some moderate improvements uh, over, over the last few months, meaning they're at least responding to things now. Okay, uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, continued here. So uh, a big part of this was investment into clean energy. And there were two big areas into this. There's 30% energy tax credit for homeowners. This also, uh, and this is low and moderate income. So you see that acronym LMI, low and moderate income taxpayers. And then, or if you happen to be a multifamily, and uh, if you have multifamily properties that um, rents to, uh, uh, to low and middle income taxpayers, you also uh, would qualify for this credit. Otherwise, um, you know, if you, uh, it, it is, it is only meant for, for homeowners and those is also government and some other uh, um, entities that are also included in this. So if you're, for our clients who are interested in investing in solar to get the credit, usually they're going into a solar fund to where essentially the fund purchases the credits from the homeowners and uh, then that pe credit passes through to the investor. Uh, and that is perfectly fine. And so that's usually what this looks like. And uh, we, we saw, we've seen clients save some material tax dollars uh, by, by doing this. Um, now, whether or not the ROI plays out on these going forward, the homeowners actually you know, pay and buy these things and that type of thing, we'll, we'll have to see how that all plays out. But at least the tax credit piece so far is, is uh, turning out pretty well for clients. The electrical ve electric vehicles component, uh, so uh, any electric vehicles, the cost had to be under 55000 If it was a vehicle, $80,000. Um, if, um, uh, if it's an SUV, et cetera, um, most electric vehicles are over that, and then the tax credits are extremely complicated. It has two halves at the at a thirty-seven fifty, and then uh, there's a mineral component, another component. It's pretty complex, uh, and we'll we'll see how that all plays out. The other uh, piece of legislation this last year, Secure Act two point um, and it did a few things. First of all, if you have a um, if you have a four hundred one k, and it allowed for additional catch-up contributions if you're over fifty. Uh, 529 roll-ups. If you have a 529 plan for uh, for one of your children, for example, and uh, if uh, the account's at least 15 years old, you can roll over $35,000 from the 529 into a Roth IRA. Okay, and that starts in uh, in 2020. Uh, um, that starts in 24, and then the uh, qualified charitable distributions. Um, so if you're uh, over 70 and a half. You can put, uh, you can do a, um, a qualified charitable distribution uh, into a um, charitable remainder trust or a charitable gift annuity up to $50,000. And of course, you avoid any sort of tax consequences. And then, or you can do a, a QCD um, directly to a 501c3 up to $100,000. And um, we did have some clients, do have clients that are taking advantage of this. And then the required minimum distribution has been increased to 73 years old. And what is the okay. what's the reason behind this Secure Act 2.0? What did why did the government put this in? Uh, I I don't know the I don't know the onus behind it, James, on why they did this. Um, the first Secure Act uh, that was passed here uh, a number of years ago, um, it, it really the Secure Act really kind of focused more on uh, kind of the investment side, and um, and so why they did it, I'm I'm not quite sure. Okay, I'm sure there's plenty of commentary on it. Um, okay, so let me kind of talk a little bit about uh, just things that maybe some of this you may be aware of, some of it you may not, but just some uh, maybe some some areas I think anybody who's getting into real estate really needs to have a good understanding um, or at least be leaning into into their accountant to make sure that they uh, they have a good understanding of these of these areas. So first of all, active versus passive. So if you're in real estate, if you're in real estate passively, Okay, so you go through and you buy, for example, a single family rental, you put into service, you have a W-2 job, uh, and you have somebody else manage it for you. If you have losses on that property, you cannot take any losses. So all those losses essentially get carried forward. If you end up changing from being an active investor to a, uh, I'm sorry, a passive investor to an active real estate, uh, real estate investor, it can become very difficult to be able to release those losses short of, being, of selling the property. 
So just kind of understand if you're if you're an act if you're an active investor or you're a passive investor. If you're actively involved in the in the management of the property, you can take losses up to twenty five thousand dollars in the course of the year, and the excess uh, will be carried forward. And that's just in, in entirety, it's not per property. And then if you are an active real estate professional, then your losses are unlimited. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the first thing that you need to understand. I have real estate professional on this sheet. Um, a real estate professional uh, is someone who um, at least 750 hours in real estate activity. Okay. And that, that is defined on what that real estate activity is. That's non-clerical uh, real estate uh, activity activities. And then, um, and then over half of your time, half of your income uh, needs to be uh, earned or garnered from real estate. Now, if you have a, if you're a you know, large W-2 income earner, whatever the case may be, you may want to look, maybe a spouse would qualify. Uh, we do have a number of high income earners where the husband or the, or the wife, uh, they have, you know, they may be an executive at a, at a company or whatever the case may be, and they're making you know, high seven or six, uh, high six or seven figure incomes, then uh, they may have their wife work to become or their husband to become the real estate professional. So they can unlock uh, some of the um, additional depreciation that can come through uh, either investments and syndication or into um, uh, into their own properties that they purchase. So uh, if you're looking to go that route, you need to look into the real estate professional status. The uh, another thing to understand, and it may be something that may be uh, useful, is the rules as it relates to a short-term rental versus a single-family rental. So a short-term rental, some people call the you know, vacation rental, Airbnb, Verbo, you know these types of things. A a short-term rental that has a um, has a uh, um, an average rental uh, time frame of seven days or under during the course of the year, that becomes active for uh, an active piece of real estate, which means you can be a passive investor, but still be able to use the depreciation or losses as, against your other active income, okay? So if you, if you do have a vacation rental, for example, if you look over the course of the year and your, and your uh, average rental timeframe was seven days or under, then it would be considered active and then you could uh, offset. Um, if you have losses, you can, uh, you can use those losses whether it comes through ordinary losses or through um, additional depreciation to be able to offset uh, some of your other active income, such as W-2 income. If it's over that time frame and it's a short-term rental, uh, then uh, it, it's considered passive and is handled basically the same way that a, um, that a traditional single-family rental is handled for tax purposes. So, so let me clarify that on Josh, because uh, you know, this is a, it's a bit tricky subject for a lot of people. So on the Airbnb or short-term rental houses, you said if you stayed in the property for more than seven days, you, you are able to qualify for the depreciation for that house. Is that correct? What did you say? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, uh, forgive me, I, I was not clear. So no, if you, so you have a, uh, you have a single, uh, so you have a vacation lot. Mm -hmm. And you go back and you look at the average uh, length of a stay over the course of that year. And if the average length of that stay was under the average length of stay, so you had somebody stay three days, somebody stay, stay 10 days, somebody stay 14 days, another person just stay for the night, et cetera. If you, if you go through and you add all of that up and you divide it by the number of people that rented the property during the course of that year, and that number comes out to under seven, then you can put it on a Schedule C on your income tax return or on page one of your business return. Uh, and then you can use the losses or the um, you can use the losses to offset active income and to be able to get some of your dollars that you paid in through withholding tax, et cetera, back. Okay, got it, got it. What about the, I think I've also heard of the short-term rental that you can claim up to like $100,000 deduction. When did that come into effect? Is that is that correct? What I, what I, I am not, that, you may or may not be correct that. I'm not familiar with. Okay, okay. Yeah, I've heard about like some people who own a, short-term rental and they're able to claim up to like hundred thousand deduction i'm not sure how they do it but you know there must be yeah i'm that, that i'm not familiar with james and it, it's possible but it, it's not something that i've heard or i've seen okay and on real estate professional i mean i think just for the audience there's a lot of uh, people that doesn't know that right so if you are working full-time and and if you have like a few i mean i don't know there's some qualification right so how many x number of rental houses I think if you have a spouse who doesn't work, you can always get that spouse to manage that 
uh, houses, I guess, right, and make sure that they're able to register more than 750 hours, right? Uh, and they don't have to have a license. They don't have to be a realtor. A lot of people come to me and say, do I need to be a, oh, I just took a license. I say, why? Oh, I don't want to be a real estate professional. No, it's not true, <laughs> right? Um, right, so, yeah, you only, need, you only need the license if you're going to be managing other properties. Um, yeah. And most states require a, a real estate broker's license to be able to manage properties, but you don't need that to manage your own. Yes, yes. Having said that, I'm not a CPA. I'm, I mean, Josh probably not going to give, I don't know whether you want to give direct advice or not. Please consult your own CPA for the specific details because it really depends on each individual uh, tax situations. Correct. Yeah, we, yeah. So, I, yeah, I didn't put the disclaimer up front, but um, <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's understood. So, yeah. Yeah, don't 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 rely on anything that I say here or James. Uh, yeah, consult your own tax professional. Um, except we have a question here, uh, Richard. Beyond personal web recommendation, how does one best confirm a quality a tax service provider if one is just a partner and not a real estate syndicator? Oh, so there's two questions here. So the the best uh, way to confirm a, a quality uh, tax service provider, probably the the best um, probably the best <laughs> your best route is going to be to find individuals that are in a similar situation to you and, and talk to and find out who they use. Um, so uh, because, you know, in this day and age, Google reviews, all this type of stuff, not necessarily helpful, especially when you're trying to find a, a uh, you know, a more of a tax strategist or higher end person. Um, if you go to, you know, Google reviews for my firm, for example, they're, they're very few. Um, it's, just, it's just not, people aren't out there on Google doing reviews. And, and uh, when you're talking more, you know, higher end, uh, tax uh, strategy, that type of thing. So a lot. Of, so you're usually your best uh, your best connection is going to be through connecting with people in your network and find out who they use and who they recommend. Um, so that that's the best way. And, and you know, verify their credentials. Make sure that they're you know if they're doing your taxes, they're either an enrolled agent or CPA. Uh, they're the only two that can represent you in front of the IRS. That is key. Um, so you know, verify verify licenses. Uh, and then um, uh, so that that's kind of probably the best feedback I can give on that. If one is just a partner and not a real estate syndicator, um, how critical is a tax advisor that is fluent in real estate specific tax laws? If there's material reasons to an advisor that's in the same physical area. So there is no reason to find someone in, the, in your physical area in this day and age. Um, we of our 900, eight, between eight and 900 clients, I would say that a small fraction of them actually within within 50 miles of us. Um, so uh, in this day and age, it's not, it's not important at all. Now, when it comes to fluent and real estate specific tax law, now, if you're just getting a K-1 uh, and it's just a pure investment for you, it's not important at all. But if you're looking to find out ways that you can unlock um, additional, uh, additional depreciation or figure out how you can leverage, if you're getting into a syndication that, that's offering you, for example, year one additional depreciation, uh, something to that effect, and you want to figure out how you may be able to unlock it, you're going to need someone who understands the uh, understands the rules. So, Richard, I don't know if that, that answered your question or not, but... Um, okay. And then uh, Dwayne uh, asked, I built a vacation home in 2023 that I have not rented out this year. If I rent it out as an Airbnb on December, do I just need to rent it one time under seven days before December 31, 2023? Yes, tremendous question, Dwayne. And we actually just had uh, two people on calls, my year on calls this last week, that we exactly had the same exact conversation. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, for your case, uh, case, Dwayne, don't know you at all, but that that's uh, very, very good. Um, so, yes, definitely. Put in as long as it's in, in service and, uh, and you rent it one time for under seven days but before the end of the year, in service means that it's obviously it's, it's capable of being rented. And uh, you have it under seven days, yes. Uh, have a cost seg study done. You don't have to have the cost seg done by the end of the year. You can have it done. You need to just have it done before the uh, uh, before you file your tax return, and then you can unlock that additional depreciation and offset against your, your active income. Okay. Um, anything else on that, James? No, I think uh, let's go go ahead. Okay, so we'll we'll continue on then. Um, yeah, just keep, just yell at me on as far as on time. Um, the uh, okay, with the bo with bonus depreciation going away, at least to real estate, we're going to see probably more clients start to utilize uh, Section One Seventy Nine. So uh, for any, you're not going to be able to use this in real estate. Uh, in your, you know, if you have a single family rentals or uh, multifamily, for example, you aren't going to be able to use Section One Seventy Nine. But if you own a business. And you have, you know, say a piece of, 
a commercial property or you have a warehouse, you have a manufacturing business, whatever the case may be, um, you can utilize uh, the Section 179 depreciation. And um, so basically, once again, kind of going anything from the walls in, and this isn't on a new build or on a new purchase. So that's sort of any sort of improvements, then uh, you can utilize Section 179 and take the full depreciation in that year. Uh, de minimis rules, if you have a, um, if you're in real estate and you have expenses in your property, so you go through and you have somebody come in and you're not quite sure if, if it's considered an improvement or if it's just simply a maintenance expense, uh, you, if any expense that's up to $2,500, uh, you simply can expense and not have to worry about whether or not it needs to be capitalized, aka depreciated, or if it can be directly expensed. The only thing is here, you do need to have a company policy uh, uh, that states such. So anything up to $2,500 that you can write off. Now, if you have audited financial statements, you can go up to $5,000. Okay. Um, it's been most, most businesses and most individuals don't have audited uh, financials. But, um, but, if you, but otherwise, you just have a policy that allows for any expense up to $2,500. Uh, you can just directly write off and don't have to worry about, uh, you know, is this, uh, is this just maintenance or is this a, an improvement that has to be depreciated? Okay. The limit on Section 179, um, is, uh, if you're married, $2.89 million, so just under $3 million. So <laughs> unless you have a lot of uh, um, uh, personal property or qualified improvement property, you're probably not going to hit the uh, limit, and that's per year. And then we talk about the bonus depreciation on the Section 179. Okay. Um, another big area that's catching people uh, with the rules over the last few years is understanding the basis and their entities. Um, so they, uh, so you're looking at, uh, you need to have an understanding of what your basis is in your, in your company. Your basis essentially is um, your, uh, the money that you put into the business, less the money you've taken out of the business, plus your retained earnings, okay, uh, and your net income. So uh, if you kind of lump all that together, if you're if you end up with negative retained earnings, okay, then uh, you would not be able to utilize. You may not be able to utilize your losses. Uh, so essentially, uh, you may have losses in a business, but you may not be able to use them. So make sure you understand what your basis is in your in your entities. Also, if you take distributions in excess of your basis out of any of your companies, it's going to end up getting taxed, even if your company lost money. So you could end up in a situation where you end up with double taxation. So, um, so just at a really high level, um, for sake of time, because this could be a, basically a webinar on its own, uh, just make sure you always understand what your, uh, what your basis is in your entity and make sure that you're working and, and, and you use that in light of, of uh, when you go about taking distributions out of your company. So uh, leaning into your, your tax advisor and your CFO, whatever the case may be, so you have an understanding of what your basis is in your, in your company so you don't create additional tax exposure or you end up with losses locked up that you can't use. Okay, and then a lot of people, they focus a lot of their time on their P&L and not necessarily on their balance sheet, but uh, make sure you have a good understanding of what's going on in the equity section of your balance sheet. Um, for uh, if you uh, form 3115, uh, change in accounting period. So if you're in real estate and you want to um, uh, go back and have a cost segregation done on a property that you bought in a previous year, but want to recognize the depreciation in the current year, you can you can do so. So say you bought a property in 2021 and you want to go ahead and have the uh, you don't want to go back and amend your 21 return, you can have a you can have the cost seg done in 2022. And then it recognize the additional depreciation on your 22 or on your 23 return, but you have to file this form. Okay. Um, so just kind of make a mental note on that. Uh, hopefully your accountant is aware of this, but just uh, you may want to jot this down. If you have an accountant that's not up to speed on all this, uh, that uh, to make them you know, just make sure to make them aware uh, and be looking for this form. If you indeed go about doing that. Um, depreciation. Uh, so, uh, depreciation is kind of one of those things. Well, I'm just going to choose not to recognize the depreciation because I don't want to, because uh, I want to show a higher uh, net income, whatever the case may be, on your on your tax return. Um, first of all, that's not technically permitted with under IRS rules, but um, if you do end up doing it, uh, you essentially will lose that depreciation. So when you go and sell that property, even if you didn't take the depreciation, 
you're still going to be forced to uh, to have acted as if you rec uh, took the depreciation, thus reducing your basis in the property, increasing your capital gain. And then when it comes to depreciation, uh, you need to have a consistent use of your depreciation rules. So you can't pick and choose you know, what you do. I'm going to do bonus depreciation here, not do bonus depreciation here. Um, uh, and so you, you have to just make sure you're consistent with your use of your uh, of your of your depreciation. So if you do utilize bonus depreciation, um, uh, for example, you have to consistently use that bonus depreciation uh, on that property going forward. Okay. Um, so that that's kind of in a, in a nutshell. I think some of the some of the high end. The only thing I didn't mention on one of the slides was alternative minimum tax. So uh, I had that AMT on there. So if you end up in a situation if you're if you're a passive investor. So this isn't real estate, uh, just in general. If you're a passive investor at all, and you create uh, net operating losses, uh, then uh, and you have and you're a little bit of a higher income taxpayer, otherwise, your income is going to get calculated two ways for tax purposes. It's going to get uh, calculated the ordinary way, and also through alternative minimum tax. So make sure when you're going through and you're utilizing any sort of strategies to reduce your income with passive income. Make sure you're having a conversation with your with your accountant, with your tax professional, to make sure that you're not running into a situation to where you're going to get hit with alternative minimum tax. What about the? I think that we heard I heard about some new uh, tax bracket that was recently introduced. For for uh, for twenty four. Uh, yes, that's what I, is it 24, I think, yeah. All right, let me, um, do you have any clarification on that? I, I do not. Uh, I know that they change the, uh, they do most years, um, but let me, uh, I am not sure for 2024. I haven't looked that far ahead yet on the, on the yeah. news. Yeah, uh, there's some news uh, came up on the tax bracket being changed. Okay. Either tax bracket change or the highest tax bracket become. Yeah, so for 24, um, yeah, so uh, you end up 35, 37%. Uh, right, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's not a new tax bracket. They just changed the, uh, the the amounts. The So the top bracket's 37. You're right, you went from 35 to 37. Um, and then you'll end up with an additional 3.8% um, uh, additional Medicare tax on top of that as well. Mm -hmm. And that's if you're earning over, uh, if you're married over 731,000. Oh, okay. And below that, it doesn't apply. Yeah, that's at the thirty-seven. So when you're below that, um, the thirty-five starts at four eighty-seven, thirty-two at three eighty-four, and so yeah, so it's ten, twelve, twenty-two, twenty-four, thirty-two, thirty-five, and now the thirty-seven. Got it. So let uh, other people ask questions. Otherwise, I have other questions. So there's there's a question from me. Yeah, can you offset W two uh, income with K one losses? Um, if, if, uh, it depends if it's in box three on your K one, which is, uh, um, rental income or loss, um, you can recognize it up to your basis. Um, but otherwise, uh, you would not be able to beyond your basis. So for example, you put a hundred thousand dollars into a syndication deal, um, you'd be able to take up to your basis, but you would not be able to take anything beyond that. So if and you would are, need to be also, you would have to be a GP and not yeah. an LP. So if they had LP, are they able to use any of the... Uh, their LP, they would not. They, it would carry forward. It would carry, I mean, it will stay in their, in their tax return, but carry forward. So one day, if they have a, I think if they have a passive gain, then they should be able to use passive losses, right? Is that correct? correct? So right, you can, right. So you can offset the, uh, those, uh, those K-1 losses against other K-1 gains. Mm -hmm. Or other, uh, or if you have other passive uh, gains, correct. So, um, so you can use to offset other income, but not W two income. Yeah, I think W two income is active income, right? You can't correct. offset that. Correct. But what about the twenty five thousand dollars that uh, everybody gets? Can they offset against that? That oh. is, oh, that is. So, if they're passive, if they're purely passive, mean, uh, meaning it's a K one, they would not get up to the twenty five k. That would be if they had a single family rental, for example, or a multifamily, 
that they self-manage and they don't hit the 750 hours. So they're active in the real estate, but they're not a real estate professional. They can take up to the 25,000. Got it. Got it. Yep. Yeah. Hope, hope that clarifies to people, uh, me who has asked that question. I mean, tax is a complicated, uh, 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 topic, right? <laughs> it is complicated and it's fluid. So, I mean, literally what I, you know, what we talk about today could change, like even the, the short-term rentals, the seven days. So that was 30 days, uh, 30 days are under now. And then, then he just came out and arbitrarily changed it to seven days earlier this year. So, um, yeah. so it's kind of one of those things that, you know, th things get, things are fluid, uh, tax, uh, tax court, sometimes change laws, and of course, legislation as well. Yeah. I think me also had a question, what is LP and GP? So LP is basically limited partners which are passive investors. Uh, GPs are the active uh, in, active uh, person in the deal. So let's say usually on a syndication, the GPs are the one who does the real work, you know, buying the asset, signing on the loan and managing the asset. Whereas LPs are more passive investors where you just contribute the funds and you don't do the real work. So that's on the syndication. And I think in, in any LLCs, right, you can have a, a primary person who's doing the real work. They can be the GP. And everybody else is just a passive, right? So, so it's it's very well laid out in my book, uh, Passive Investing in Commercial Real Estate. It's a very simple book. You know, you just look at it, look it up in Amazon. Uh, it's twenty bucks, but it gives you a lot of information that uh, you'll you you otherwise have to pay for in a lot of uh, guru courses, right? So, uh, but at very high level, that's what it is between LP Limited Partners and GP, who's a general partner. And. Uh those who are, you know, heavily are either real estate professionals or can can use those losses. A lot of them will work with uh, will work with people like James um, in regards to structuring their deals in a way that they can uh, they can release those uh, year one losses uh, as in as a GP. Yeah, yeah. Then they revert to an LP in year two. Yes. Uh, any other questions on the Q and A? Otherwise, I can uh, ask a few more questions. So. Uh, so what happened to the passive investors who are passive and they just keep on get, getting depreciation, right? Uh, it just stays on in the tax return until they, uh, when the property sells, what happens? So when the property sells, then at that point, those losses are unlocked. So okay. essentially, it would reduce their capital gains at the point of the sale of the property. Okay, so there's definitely still got benefit at the end at the capital gains side of it, right? So right, so you just carry you essentially just carry the losses. So what it all it does is increase the basis, increases your basis in the uh, in the investment, and so uh, when the property sells at that point, it's just the difference between uh, the the sale their portion of the sales price versus their their basis at that point, uh, which would be the money they put in plus their unrecognized uh, losses. Got it. The other question I have for is Josh is uh, whenever people in in uh, any business where they do a return of capital as part of the operation instead of a return on profit, right? Uh, I mean, return as a profit versus return of capital, right? So when this when they give a return of capital, so that's just going to be a capital return, I guess. There's no tax, no tax, uh, no that, tax right. on that. But if they uh, put it as a profit, then there's tax on it. Is that right? That's correct. So that could be a reason why some people do return of capital, right? Correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because sometimes you always... go into a deal and then uh, then they refinance and then return your capital. But then you have to realize that if that's what happens, then it would revert, it would reduce your basis uh, in the in the investment, which may put you in a position where you would not be able to recognize losses at that point. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Finance and sales are pretty straightforward. I'm talking more about the operation profit itself, the operational uh, distribution. So um, there are people out there who does a return as a capital. And I always thought that that was not a good structure, but I also learned from some people uh, who invest professionally and they say they love that model. So I'm not, it's just a revelation for me because they said, oh, I don't have to pay tax for mm -hmm. until I get back my capital, right? It reduces my risk as well. So um, yeah, if there's no other questions, uh, I think we are good. So if, we're going to be recording this. Uh, I mean, this is being recorded and we're going to be sharing the recording. So uh, please, uh, you know, listen to the recording uh, offline. And if you are listening to this podcast, uh, please join our email list uh, by coming to achieveinvestmentgroup.com. Uh, um, 
our newsletter or email list, you know, we have like almost 5,000 people reading my newsletter every week, right? Uh, we have like more than 10,000 people in our email list. So our readership is 50% every week and that's pretty good for a newsletter. So there definitely there's a lot of benefit that we give in the newsletter. It's very customized. Uh, it's a lot of fun newsletter too. So um, so Josh, uh, any parting words? Uh, uh, you want to talk about your firm and uh, how you can help out? Well, yeah, I mean, for um, uh, for anyone listening, yeah, make sure you're, you know, we're, the summer's tomorrow. Uh, reach out to your accountant, get your year-end tax planning call in if you haven't done so already. Uh, that we can have that conversation so you're aware of what you may be uh, facing uh, and then any sort of changes you need to make before your end or deployment of capital before your end uh, to reduce your tax strategy. Make sure you get that done in December. Um, so as far as the firm end, I'm not necessarily looking for, you know, for any more business. Uh, we're kind of, uh, it's kind of one of those things. Definitely don't have a problem uh, finding clients, but um, I encourage you if, you know, uh, have a podcast out there, rather direct people there, Belcom Business Podcast. And uh, we talk about tax and as well as a lot of just other just general business principles in that particular podcast. Yeah. And, and can you tell the name of the podcast again? Yeah. So it's yeah. Belk, my last name, B-E-L-K on business. Okay. okay. Belk on business. Yeah. I saw a few advertisements. So awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Josh, for sure coming thing. in. You have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.